It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from the front lines, analyse the impact of drone strikes on Russia, and ask why the British Foreign Secretary is heading to China. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 30th of August, one year and 187 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our associate editor Dom Nichols, assistant comment editor Francis Dernley, and Russia correspondent Natalia Vasilyeva. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine and Russia. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. Let's start inside uh, Russia and also in Crimea. So in what we think is the biggest Ukrainian drone attack um, since the war started, certainly in terms of geographic scope and impact, six regions of Russia and Crimea, Russian positions in occupied Crimea, were hit uh, last night. So first, uh, quite a we think quite a sizable wave of drone um, a, a drone strike hit the Russian military airbase in Peskov region. So we're about 20 k's from the border with Estonia, right up in the northwest of Russia here. A number of military aircraft were set ablaze. Russian officials said four IL-76, Illusion 76 military transport planes were damaged in the attack. These are the big four-engine strategic logistic airlift, the, the big old big old things. Quite old, but still good and work and a big they were damaged. That was according to Russian officials. And then further reports on social media from a number of trusted sources say that a Tupolev-22, which is the uh, the long-range strategic bomber, the kind of thing that had been firing a lot of the, the Kinzhal hypersonic missiles and other cruise missiles, what have you, into Ukraine, one of those was damaged as well. So TASS, the Russian news agency, quoting emergency services, said two of the IL-76 planes had burst into flames. And aside from that, so that strike, Russian officials also reported other drone attacks across a number of regions. So let's just picture a clock face, put Moscow in the middle and draw a line down to the six o'clock and out to the eight o'clock. So that little lozenge there, that's where all these drone strikes happen. So in the Bryansk region, that's right down in the southwest of the country. That's about 150 k's inside Russia from the from the point where the, where Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine meet. So that's that's Bryansk. That's the city, but the, that's the region down there that was hit. So was the region of Oryol, which is just to the east of Bryansk. Then go slightly north, getting closer to the centre of the clock face, if you like. Kaluga region that was hit. That's between Bryansk and Moscow. Moscow region was hit itself, although we don't we don't think the city was. And then Ryazan, which is to the southeast of Moscow. So that entire lozenge to the southwest and south of, of Moscow and including Moscow was hit by drones overnight. No casualties reported there. And then in Crimea, Sevastopol Harbour was reportedly hit by naval drones, although I couldn't find any other information to back that up. 
Now, in a briefing today to journalists, Russia's foreign ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova, she said that the drones, particularly the ones that hit the Peskov Air Base, she said could not have covered such distances without information from Western countries. I know maybe she means Google Maps, but I mean that's what. I, so I used Google Maps this morning, saw very nice pictures of my L seventy six is out in the pan at uh, Pskov. So you don't need that much help from Western countries to find the bloody place, Mrs. Zakharova. Pesky Google Maps. Anyway, meanwhile, Russia also launched massive airstrikes, air attacks of its own overnight last night, killed two people in Kiev. Ukrainian officials have described it as the most powerful wave of attacks to hit the city since spring. So over 40 missiles and drones, we're not sure the exact mix, targeted the city. Uh, uh, Mayor uh, Vitaly Klitschko well, it said all but one drone was was reportedly intercepted. Damage and casualties were caused by the falling debris and the and the weapon parts from when the thing comes out of the sky. Obviously, Sergei Popko, who's the head of Kiev's military administration, said on Telegram, "Kiev has not experienced such a powerful attack since spring. The enemy launched a massive combined attack using drones and missiles." And uh, General Zaluzny, who's Ukraine's commander in chief, the head of the armed forces. He said Ukraine air defences shot down all... Okay, so he did put a number on it. All 28 Russian missiles and 15 out of 16 drones launched in the attack. Also hit was Zhitomir, Zhitomir, which is uh, about 100 k's west of Kiev. There was uh, buildings and railway tracks hit there. And Ukrainian officials said some trains were delayed. So I think that kind of says it all, really. Now, separately around around the battle space, so... US-based think tank Institute for the Study of War. They said that geolocated footage published yesterday shows Ukrainian forces have advanced south of Bakhmut. Ukraine's general staff say Russia seemed to be holding that push there by artillery and airstrikes mostly. There's no indication of any ground forces attempting to push back the um, Ukrainian advances. And Ukraine are also, again, this is per the ISW, pushing about 5k southeast of Ropatina, that's in western Zaporizhia Oblast, that's the lozenge, that's the push that's having the most success of the sort of two pushes down south and the effort through Bakhmut. It's that one in the in the west, Robotine, that seems to be the most successful and, and still ongoing. And I think I think that you know it's like it's difficult to knit these things together. But I think what's happening there is the the, the point about minefields and these huge defences that Russia seems to have or has down there, and we think they're through the first line, Ukraine is through the first line of what we think is three main lines of defence. The point is that these are all, all defeatable. Mines are defeatable. But you just need time to do it. You need time to concentrate on the device itself. You need time to think about how you're going to push through the lines. And if you've got people shooting at you and loads of artillery raining down, you haven't got a lot of time. So I think what, what Ukraine have been doing over the last few weeks of targeting these the long-range precision strikes on ammunition dumps and logistic nodes and what have you, that is now having having an effect because there is not enough artillery fire coming down to stop that push down through Robertina to to squeeze the flanks. There is, a, as you can imagine, a, a lozenge. So the flanks are under extreme pressure, but they, the Russians don't seem to be able to muster enough combat power to close that salient and, and kill everyone inside it. So it's, it's just interesting... When we look at the these comments that are oh, the counteroffensive isn't going very well, I think it's all knitting together. They changed their tactics a few weeks ago, concentrated on these long-range strikes, and I think that is now having an effect directly on the ground at the front line. But hey, we'll, we will see. We will see more, obviously, as time moves on. And just finally, a Russian military blogger, one of the channels that we do think speaks not altogether nonsense, he suggested that Russian forces are continuing to commit. A significant number of reserves, particularly the airborne elements, the VDV, Russian VDV, into the area of uh, Robotine, indicating Russian forces are worried about the vulnerability there. And this might be why we're seeing so few ground operations elsewhere, particularly, around, as I say, around Bakhmut. But also, if you think about the northeast, Russia has been having or had been having some tactical success in the northeast, not making a big breakthrough, but were were advancing slowly in some areas. But we've not heard about that for about a, for for at least a week now. I think any any real advance up there, which might mean that that either you know, Ukraine's holding the line there, well they clearly are holding the line, but might be because Russia's redirecting forces because they they don't seem to have much of a of an operational reserve, as in uncommitted troops. So if you want to stop an enemy breakthrough somewhere, you need to take if you're in that situation. You need to take troops from elsewhere, and maybe they're taking them from the line 
in the northeastern Rampak Moot, hence relying on airstrikes and, uh, and artillery Rampak Moot rather than ground forces, to try and to, to stall this, uh, this, this advance um, from Ukraine down in the south. Thanks very much. Dom, Francis, can I come to you? Uh, there's quite a few political and diplomatic stories for you to pick up on today. Where would you like to start? Well, thanks, David. There certainly are. Today marks a significant diplomatic moment for the UK, a visit by Britain's Foreign Secretary James Cleverly to China, an event which is drawing considerable commentary here this morning and which I lead on due to the broader issues it highlights in terms of China's role in world affairs and different approaches debated within the West for dealing with a country whose power in the world has exponentially grown in recent years. However, much like the country, it's a big subject, so I will address that later and cover other bits and pieces of news first. Starting with Germany. So yesterday, Germany arrested a dual national for selling to Russia electronic components that are used in military gear, including drones currently deployed by Moscow's troops in Ukraine. The arrest came just days after the arrest of another suspect for selling military components to Russia. Federal prosecutors said that the man arrested, uh, Valdemar W., exported components on 26 occasions from January 2020 to March 2023 to a company in Russia that makes military equipment. The objects supplied through the suspect's company in Western Germany are common components of the Orland 10 drone, prosecutors said. And to circumnavigate sanctions, the suspect first uh, imported the goods to Germany before transferring them to two civilian dummy companies based in Russia. Now, the Russian companies then ensured that the components were sent on to the military gear manufacturer. I mention this story for two reasons. One, to highlight how desperate Russia is to acquire these components, thanks to certain sanctions and the methods they're using to try and counteract them. And two, because it is yet further evidence of the charge one finds being stated increasingly regarding Germany, that it has been considered a soft target by Moscow and is thereby one of the core targets of its espionage activities. Now, in other news, Russian pro-war nationalist Igor Gherkin was seen in court yesterday afternoon failing in an appeal against his pre-trial detention. He's facing charges of inciting extremism after fiercely criticising the way that Russia has carried out its war in Ukraine, something, of course, we've covered extensively on the podcast. The pro-war blogger fought in the 2014 Ukraine invasion and was also convicted by a Dutch court over the shooting down of the Malaysian passenger plane famously that took place in Ukraine in 2014 with a loss of 298 lives. But all of this, as I say, is further evidence that Russia is clamping down on possible dissent from nationalist figures. We understand that Wagner chief uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin was buried in a private funeral in St. Petersburg yesterday, as we thought likely. Apparently, it was held in a closed format and was open to very few people, hence why there were those question marks that were posed yesterday as to whether he really was being buried. But apparently he was. And that's it. The end. Full stop to him, a man of course who we've been covering on the podcast for so many months and a very ignominious end I think it's fair to say um One other story that's literally breaking. Uh, I spoke yesterday about the fallout from the Pope's remarks last week. And as a consequence of said remarks, which I'll detail again in a moment, Lithuania has summoned the Vatican's top diplomat in the country after the Pope had told Russian youth to remember that they are the heirs of the great Russian empire. So in response to these impromptu remarks, Pope Francis made on Friday in a live video address to Catholic youth gathered in St. Petersburg, the Lithuanian Foreign Affairs ministry invited the representative of the Vatican to come for a talk, uh, rather menacing way of putting it, after the Archbishop returns from his holiday. Uh, I can imagine that's going to be uh, not too much fun for him. But as I say, I mentioned this story just because the fallout is clearly continuing here. I think the reason it's related to, or particularly why Lithuania is unhappy about this, is that the territories of Lithuania and Poland were annexed into the Russian Empire in the 18th century by Catherine the Great. The countries then broke away after the First World War, after two 19th century revolts against the empire were brutally suppressed. So these
these kind of remarks of references to a great Russian empire do not go down well there. And as I said yesterday, certainly did not go down well in Ukraine. Uh, as I say, the Vatican uh, were keen to try and dispel any damage that has been done diplomatically. And they've said that Pope Francis' intent was to preserve and promote all that is positive in the great Russian cultural and spiritual heritage. But as I say, the timing of that has not gone down well at all. Uh, lastly, back to Russia, a former Russian general has called for a tactical nuclear strike in southern Ukraine after Kiev's forces are said to have gained a foothold in Moscow's weakest defences, something we covered yesterday and which Dom has just spoken about. This is a pro-Kremlin MP, Gurulev. He's 55, retired lieutenant general. Uh, he's urged Russian military leaders to target the Zaporizhia region, recently recaptured by Kiev. He said that the village of Rybosyne is an ideal place for the use of tactical nuclear weapons. They have all gathered there in one place. It's just perfect. A small story and obviously a pretty ridiculous one, frankly, but it does speak to the kind of rhetoric that the Kremlin continues to resort to in the face of Ukrainian military successes. They play the nuclear card. And until that card is well and truly defenestrated, it will continue to rear its head and I still believe is likely to play a core role before this war ends. And it's been a while since we've talked about it, so I thought I would raise it here, albeit on the back of what is really a, an off-the-cuff remark by somebody who is very much in the background of this war. So I don't want to give it too much attention, but as I say, it's just yet another example of what the Kremlin will do. It will encourage MPs to say these kind of things because they know that it riles up the West and gets certain countries rather um, anxious. Thank you very much, Francis. Well, let's go to our Russia correspondent, Natalia Vasilyeva. Natalia, you wrote up the story for The Telegraph yesterday of Yevgeny Prigozhin's funeral. As Francis, Francis mentioned, it was rather peculiar. Quite a lot of things happened which you might not expect to happen at, at a funeral for a hero of Russia. What did you make of what you saw? Yes, absolutely. That was both surprising and unsurprising in ways that that would be quite obvious for someone who have followed Prigozhin for quite a number of years, like myself. So the day for me and other correspondents started with going on social media and seeing reports that at least at three cemeteries in St. Petersburg, they, we saw uh, a heightened security presence. There were police cordons, uh, roads would have been blocked. And it was hours and hours after that that we saw a official statement on Prigozhin's on the Telegram page for Prigozhin's press service that said literally half an hour before the cemeteries were supposed to close that he was laid to rest at another cemetery. Again, quite a peculiar situation, but not for someone who had followed Prigozhin for a long time. Way before the war started, he was known locally as uh, someone who liked a good practical joke. I remember just a couple of years ago, he staged a photo op to pretend that he was meeting Alexei Navalny when he went to St. Petersburg, sort of in an attempt to both troll him and discredit him, to, to, to make it look as if he was meeting someone as notorious as that. And sometime also before the war, he reportedly sent a man with identical personal data with his, his namesake to Lithuania just after he was sanctioned by Lithuania for the guy to purely pose for pictures in Lithuania and to be able to show that someone with his name could still travel. So he was known for those practical jokes. And to me, it was not surprising that uh, everyone was running around town waiting for the burial to happen somewhere else before he was buried at a completely different place. Again, you could see that maybe that was his wishes, but also you could also see that this is something what the Kremlin would want. And again, like we know Vladimir Putin as someone who at least liked to declare his adherence to the law. He often likes to um, reiterate that he's a trained lawyer and that law is very important to him. So if he really was, if he really did care about the law, he, you know, you might also argue that Prigozhin, whatever he did beforehand, was entitled to a state funeral because he was awarded... Um, the Hero of Russia Medal, which is one of the top military decorations, which entitles you to a state funeral. You know, you're supposed to have an honorary guard, maybe one or two cannons, sort of saying, bidding its last farewell to you. But that ceremony was completely scrapped. Putin was not to be seen. His spokesman said earlier he was not going to be there. And overall, that was a very low-key funeral, which I guess is something that Kremlin would have wanted. I, you know, I think it, it's also quite noteworthy that 
the funeral was not covered by Russian state media at all. Some of the top state media state channels did not mention the funeral at all. Others just literally showed a couple of seconds of, of, of archive footage or footage of the funeral of Prigozhin's, one of his closest allies who was laid to rest elsewhere on the same day. So we definitely see that the Kremlin wants Prigozhin and Wagner to be forgotten as soon as is possible. And Natalia, do you think that will happen? Is this the, the full stop? Is this the end of, of well, the ultimate end of you know, Evgeny Prigozhin and his unsuccessful rebellion? Or will, will the re- repercussions from what he did you know, several months ago continue throughout Russia? What, what do you make of that? I think there are two possible answers to that question. First is the shortest and simple answer, yes, he will be forgotten. I mean, his press office published that note saying that he was buried at this cemetery yesterday evening. And uh, all day today, anyone could just go and lay flowers, stage a picket if they wanted. But what we saw this morning, we just saw individual mourners. There were no crowds. There was no attempt for someone to picket it, to turn into a political event. So I would say whoever says that Prigozhin was popular or like he had the political potential, you know, we just don't see it because obviously anyone could could was free to go. This is not something that would be considered dangerous. So we didn't see anything, any of the public adoration that one anyone might have expect. But second, I, I I do think that Prigozhin's mutiny did bring to surface the resentment and the disappointment from from Russian public with what's going on in the country in general, which did not manifest in any active support in any actions on the state of Russia society, but it manifested in the complete apathy and paralysis what we saw when the mutiny happened. Because again, we didn't see any rallies in support of the mutiny, but we have not seen any, we haven't seen a a single uh, attempt to stop the mutineers. We haven't seen a single military unit. We haven't seen a single band of civilians trying to stop Wagner troops marching on the Moscow. So uh, the mutiny did show the cracks in Russian society. It did show how apathetic Russians are to what's going on, how they, at, at, at the very worst, they don't care about what's going on in Ukraine in the front line. And that's, that is a fact. And it's not going to go away, whatever happens to Prigozhin or Wagner. Thanks so much, Natalia. Let's move to your fascinating piece on the impact of the drone attacks on Moscow in particular. You've been speaking to ordinary Russians and just trying to gauge their reactions to the drones flying overhead and exploding and hitting hitting buildings in, in Moscow. One thing you wrote, which I thought was incredibly interesting, was that, I'm just going to quote from your piece, there appeared to be no ill will toward Ukraine for sending its drones to the Russian capital. Ukrainian officials have claimed that strikes deep inside Russia are intended to wake its people up to the reality of war, but survivors of the drone strikes doubt the attacks will change the minds of Russians, especially those who back the invasion. Could you tell us about the people you spoke to and what what, what they told you? Uh, Yes, sure. I mean, first off, I started working on that story before for the plane crash that killed Evgeny Prigozhin. But I do believe that the story still stands as we see drone attacks continue. And obviously, it's a different thing when a drone hits a military airfield like it did in Pskov this morning. Obviously, the pictures were very dramatic. There's massive damage. But I mean, it is a military target. And of course, psychologically, it's very different when a drone hits a residential building in a well-off area in Moscow. I remember when the first drone attacks in Moscow were reported, it was back in May. There was shock. There was a lot of fear on the ground. And as I tried to revisit it now, I I could see that the mood has significantly changed. Again, like for me, it takes an extra effort because I'm not in Russia anymore. So I cannot speak from my own first heart experience. So I had to go to people and see what it's like. First off, which I really wanted to say, there was no room to speak about it in, in the story. But what really struck me was the fact that when I started working on that story, I had an idea of you know who I might be able to find, who would be uh, a good person to find. And I originally thought that it would be very hard to find witnesses of the attacks. I mean, obviously, there would be Moscovites who could speak to what, what impact it has on them, but it would probably be difficult to find someone who actually saw it but uh it actually turned out to be very easy i literally find found three people three witnesses in the space of an hour an hour and a half when i merely contacted my contacts in moscow asking them 
if they happen to know anyone who might have come into contact with those attacks. And they all had someone in mind and they all immediately said, oh, you know, my sister lives in that building that was hit. Or I have a friend who is back in Moscow and like he can't sleep because of the drone attack. So I was, I myself was surprised to discover of how, what a mundane thing it has become. And as one one of the people told me that it looks like everyone in Moscow by now has heard that sound. For example, I spoke to one woman who lives in uh, Komsomolsky Prospect. It's a very nice neighborhood just southwest of the city center. And she told me that not only did she hear the drone that 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 crashed just across the road in May, but also she sometimes can hear the drone strikes in Moscow City in the business district, a couple, something like five kilometers away. So that that really became part of a landscape, and I found it very stunning. But yeah, I was also curious to see what impact those attacks produce, because again, you know, Ukraine has been coy about claiming responsibility for those attacks. I mean, by now, yes, they have admitted that they were behind attacks on the Crimean Bridge, something like that. But again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think they have claimed responsibility for a single Moscow attack yet. So what I I heard from people is that whatever effect Ukraine is trying to achieve, it, it just not working this way. On the one hand, what I heard, it doesn't produce any specific hatred towards Ukrainians, which to me is easy to understand because if you look at the geography of the drone strikes in Moscow, most of them actually hit very much opposition-minded, liberal, well-off neighborhoods, which have voted for an oppos- for, for the opposition for a long time, which would be anti-war as it is. These would be the people who would be protesting when it was relatively safe to protest. These are the people who are still anti-war. It's not likely that their opinion w- would change. And this is what I heard from people. But I also heard other opinions saying that if someone was pro-war or if someone was hesitant and just didn't, didn't want to talk about it, didn't want to think about it, it was definitely un- unlikely to change their mind and, and like look around and, and think, oh, what is happening to us? They would be more likely to jump to the conclusion that, hey, by the way, we're being attacked. And all of those months when the government was telling us this war is about defending you or defending Russia, maybe they, 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 they were right. That would be the conclusion that some people might jump to. Uh, But again, I was very lucky to speak to this woman who uh, both saw a uh, drone strike outside her house. And she also happens to be a psychotherapist who sees clients in Moscow. And um, she was able to talk about um, the mood and what people are struggling with. And apparently quite a lot of her clients are basically in denial, are trying to shut themselves out from reality, and they just don't want to talk about it. Because obviously, if you if you keep worrying about it, you're just you're just going to go crazy, as, as some people have told me. Thank you very much, Natalia. Dom, I know you had some thoughts on this. Do you want to jump in now? Yeah, sure. Thanks for that. And hi, Natalia. Great to speak again. Well, a couple of things, really. I've just been chatting here in the studio with with the f-bomb and he made a very good point he was saying that it's unthinkable to many of us in in the west or outside russia that these things might happen on a fairly regular basis now and not to have a massive impact on society up to, up to and including calls for the government to to fall or to uh, you know to, to be toppled and and it kind of comes down to well, I think they've gone through apathy and it, it comes, Francis was saying, and I agree, that it's, it comes from a position of powerlessness. People just feel they are powerless. They, that stuff is high politics and what have you. And they just, they've never really had a vote in it. They turn out once in a while and Putin rubber stamps a 98%, you know, ballot. And so if they feel powerless, then, then there, is, there is almost no reason to get worried about this unless it's directly impacting you. And I thought that was quite, that's quite interesting. It's probably worth a, worth a, in a moment, Natalia, I'll be interested in your thoughts on on whether or not you feel there is this this powerless trait running through Russian society now after twenty years of of Putin. But the only other thing I was going to say was that I noticed from the from news reports this morning. So we were quoting on our on our live blog, we quoted a Ukrainian woman, Ludmila Savchuk, fifty seven year old teacher whose apartment in northwest Kiev was was smashed up last night, and she said the blast wave broke all the windows, the entry doors are broken too. We were terribly scared. Then there was another explosion in a couple of seconds, 20 or 30 seconds. We're cleaning everything now. So there's a woman who has been subject to this 
night after night for for a year and a half now and she she does say she's terribly scared but i mean there's a real stoicism in there we're finished up we're cleaning everything now they're just just getting on with it and i posit that against the footage we see of these of these strikes in russia last night particularly the ones that are reportedly from the military airfield of peskov but there is footage you'll see you'll find it on social media people filming this it's quite some way away but you can hear them they are shocked by what they're witnessing and they're, and they're sort of calling out and, and screaming and shouting. And you know, now, I spoke last week or whatever it was, a week before, about drone strikes and, and we had a, a discussion about where the moral line is about firing at civilian targets or even firing at military targets in the knowledge that if your projectile is intercepted, it is likely to fall on a civilian area and therefore civilians could be hurt and killed and you know we had a we had a discussion about that i'm not i'm not hard over there but we had a good chat and got a lot of um good feedback with people saying that's 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 what it is and that's fair enough and and i was just i was reminded of that this morning by looking at ludmilla savchuk's reaction that she said she was terribly scared but she's getting on with it and cleaning up the glass and then these people these i presume are russian citizens very clearly shocked by what they're seeing at piskov piskov a, a very obviously military target and i my overwhelming feeling was that was good. I thought, I don't want you to be terrorised. I don't want you as a civilian to be killed, hurt, maimed, what have you. I don't want you to be terrorised, but I want you to be scared. I want you to feel something. I want you to, to say to yourself, this wasn't happening before the special military nonsense all started. Why is that? Can you join the dots? Is, the, is it because the Ukrainians are this all-powerful, warmongering, Nazi drug dealer society, or is it because of something that's happening in Moscow and Putin? I just, I was pleased is too, because it sounds a bit dark, really, but but I, I, wasn't, I wasn't worried for these people, and I didn't empathise with them. I was quietly happy that they were scared. I don't want them to be terrorised, but I want them to be scared by what they're seeing, not what is happening physically to them. Now, I don't know if that makes me a bad man, but but I was just I just felt that this morning when I was looking at these two reactions. But you, by all means, come back at me on that, um, Natalia, or anybody. But I'd be really interested in your ideas about the powerlessness of Russian society. Yeah, Dom, I, I know where you're coming from in terms of seeing the reaction of Russians. Obviously, that reaction is, is there and like however apathetic you are, you know, you would react like that if you saw something as horrific. And about powerlessness, I mean, yes, absolutely. And it's not something that that just started two years ago. The Putin regime has been pushing pushing away the Russian society to the margins for years. I mean, you know, if you looked back 10 years ago, it was like, yes, you're allowed to come out with a political protest as long as you get an official permit. Later on, it would be something like it would be very difficult to get a permit. So if you if you rally without one, you would be very much likely beaten and maybe detained, you know, spent 10, 10 days in, in jail. After that, all of those protests were essentially barred. Apparently, technically in Moscow, they still have those COVID restrictions. I mean, there are no COVID restrictions anywhere else. But apparently, when someone recently tried to apply for a permission to rally, they were they were told that the COVID restrictions are in place. What I'm trying to say is that the government has been trying to disempower the citizens for so many years, starting with protests and elections. And basically showing them that whatever you do, there's nothing that you can do. You know, I I can look back to the massive wave of anti-Putin protests from 2011-2012, where uh, people came out in such large numbers that it felt that, you know, a victory is very close, or at least the government is going to make some concession. And it didn't. And because it kept, kept happening for years and years, and the screws were being tightened further and further, that tolerance for for pain, that tolerance for repressions, of course, of course, grew, and that's why you know we ended up where we are. At some point, people were, were, were terrified and shocked when Putin ordered troops into Ukraine, and now, eighteen months later, um, a drone attack on a residential building in Moscow doesn't shock everyone. That's 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 about it. And again, I totally understand what you say about thinking that those Russians in the regions, maybe they will feel the pain and they will see the light. But right now, it just it doesn't look like whatever is happening is changing the minds of the vast majority of people. I'm not talking about the opposition-minded minority or the minority of war mongers like Igor Girkin and his supporters. I'm talking about 
in between 60% um, of the population. So far, they're unmoved, and I don't see how they're going to be moved anytime soon. Well, thank you very much, Natalia Vasilyeva, for that, and Dom, for your question there. Francis, can I come back to you? At the beginning of your section today, you spoke about uh, the British Foreign Secretary's uh, journey to China uh, and why this is so important and what it shows us about um, foreign policy and Britain's sort of wishes in the world for the next few years. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that and just put put the Ukraine war in that context? Well, thanks, David. That was a fascinating discussion. Yes, James Cleverly is the first British Foreign Secretary to visit China in half a decade today and has insisted that not engaging with China would be a show of weakness. And this is an important moment, I think, in terms of Britain trying to grapple with this question about how to deal with China for the next year, the next five years, and possibly even the next decade. Although, of course, if a new government were to come in, which many of the pollsters believe is likely uh, within the next uh, year or so, then there may well be a a shift in approach. But this is still a significant moment in the context of the war in Ukraine, as you say. It will lay the ground for Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's meeting with Xi, which is being sought for the G20 summit in India next month. But it has exposed splits within the British establishment, really, but certainly within the governing Conservative Party about how to strike a balance between engaging with as well as standing up to China. And the Telegraph understands that there are figures around Mr Sunak's cabinet table who are against Mr Cleverley's trip. And a senior Whitehall figure also accused the Foreign Secretary of sucking up to the Chinese and questioned the wisdom of the visit. Now, for context here in Britain, a few weeks ago, Deputy Prime Minister Oliver Dowden said China represents the largest state-based threat to Britain's economic security, while stressing that he did not want to decouple from China. There was also a devastating report by the UK's Parliament's uh, Intelligence and Security Committee, which argued that the UK is severely handicapped by the short-termist approach that has allowed China to penetrate every sector of the UK's economy. They certainly don't mince their words, and I remember covering it at the time. It also accused the British government of failing to develop an effective strategy for dealing with national security threats from China, which it argued has allowed their intelligence to aggressively target the UK, something, of course, experienced by many Western countries and companies, including Microsoft in the US very recently. But Mr Cleverly has taken critics of his trip head-on, and defended the diplomatic engagement. He told the Financial Times that, and I quote, to consciously withdraw and not utilise our standing in the world, the authority and voice that we have, that would be seen not as a sign of strength. In essence, he argues that China is too big to ignore, although in doing so, he has appeared to dismiss the approach of Liz Truss, the former prime minister who first appointed him as foreign secretary and who wanted to designate China as a threat in a reworked foreign policy and diplomatic strategy document. Now, regular listeners will recall that in a significant speech back in April, Mr. Cleverly laid out his nuanced approach to China, built around three pillars. First, to protect national security whenever Beijing poses a threat to UK people or posterity. Second, to align cooperation with friends and allies in the Indo-Pacific and across the world to uphold international law. And third, to engage directly with China to promote stable relations. Evidently, it is this third pillar which is the core priority of this visit. We understand that he will discuss Hong Kong, the climate crisis and the war in Ukraine. But progress, and this is important, is being made on the second, albeit very much in the background. And I think that's something that's going on in the background in many Western countries at the moment, regardless of what they're saying publicly with regard to China. And that is that Britain has seen its foreign policy interests, like the US, like many other countries, focus particularly on the end Pacific within the past couple of years. And a new report was published only today by the Foreign Affairs Select Committee here in Britain, calling for even stronger ties to be forged in that region as the global geopolitical and economic centre of gravity moves eastward, evidently designed fundamentally to bolster democratic interests in that region. 
But nonetheless, all of that said, James Cleverly is adopting, I think, what many would call is a realist approach to China. And that is one favoured by, of course, the, perhaps the most well-known realist in the world, Henry Kissinger, who recently gave an extensive interview to The Economist, where he expressed his concern at a possible future confrontation between the US and China. Kissinger said that he thinks both sides have convinced themselves that the other represents a strategic danger and said he was particularly alarmed by the competition uh, between the two to gain technological and economic superiority, especially when fueled by artificial intelligence. To quote him, we're in the classic pre-World War I situation where neither side has much margin of political concession and in which any disturbance of the equilibrium can lead to catastrophic consequences. Ideally, he argues, therefore, and as I say, this is one that is adopted or a stance of being adopted by uh, many Western leaders at the moment, is to build a new approach based on kind of shared values when shared values can be found. So ones that both the West and the China can endorse. He says that the West misunderstands China's ambitions. And for him, it is not heading for world domination in a Hitlerian sense. That uh, He says that they're not trying to create a new world order. He believes that war was inevitable for Nazi Germany because Hitler needed it. Something, as I've spoken about in the past, endorsed by Adam Tooze in his excellent book, Wage of destruction, which argues that the Nazi state and the economy could only survive through conquest, something that Kissinger and others argue is not the case for China. I assume that he also means that China is not able to export its values globally. One cannot import Chinese hyper-nationalist brand of communism to Britain or elsewhere, for instance, uh, which is different to the perceived threat, of course, during the Cold War posed by the Soviet Union, which sought global revolution by offering a malleable internationalist ideology. So, in essence, we have two approaches. One that seeks to gradually decouple from China, seeing it as a global threat. And the other, adopted perhaps by more of the clevy, cleverly, the Kissinger approach of seeking to work with China where possible, maintaining dialogue and more sceptical of the threat posed by its values and ambitions. I would argue that regardless of which position one holds, what is true surely for both is that one requires leverage over China. And one of the reasons I think that Cleverly is coming under such extensive criticism is that it is not clear what he is willing to threaten China with in these talks. I know I've said this before, and I bang this drum a lot, but Theodore Roosevelt was surely right when he said that the important thing in diplomacy is to speak softly and carry a big stick. But where is the stick with regard to Britain's handling with, of China and argue, arguably the West's handling of China. It simply isn't clear. In which case, one is effectively saying to China, don't do this, we think that's wrong. And when they say, or what, one has no clear response. And until this core issue is addressed, I think Western political figures will continue to be criticised. It's all well and good offering a nuanced approach to China. But if all that really means in practice is raising human rights abuses whilst maintaining investment and strong economic ties, then it leaves them very much open to criticism, especially if relations do continue to deteriorate due to China's explicit support of Russia and its obvious ambitions over Taiwan. Well, thank you very much for that briefing, Francis. I think it'll be very interesting to see how Cleverly talks about the Ukraine war in his meetings with Chinese officials. So do come back tomorrow and just update us on that, because I think you've given us the sort of briefing ahead of time, and we're going to see how the, in, the issues play out in real time over the next few days. So thank you, Francis. I believe with one eye on the clock, we're at the end of our time together now. So can I just move to your final thoughts? Dom Nichols, would you like to go first? Yeah, I'll just return to the drone strikes last night and particularly the ones in the Russian airfield of Peskov up by Estonia I just think I think it is worth noting this and dwelling just for, just for a moment I've said before many times that I don't think Russia the Russian armed forces is a, a learning organization now you know, some people said no there, there there are they have shown signs of of being able to learn and adapt and I accept that there are certain elements on the ground but I think they're very very tactical 
and we're not seeing anything now. They've withdrawn to a fixed defence that they've had months to prepare. There is no sign of an operational level breakthrough up in the northeast or around Bakhmut or any, anywhere else. So, so they might have learned how to defend even better than they could already. But you know, I don't see a huge amount. And then let's look at Peskov last night. You know, what on earth were the air defence doing? Well, they clearly weren't doing anything. Now. To lose four IL IL seventy sixes, that that's a biggie. Okay, those are those are not easily easily replaced. I don't know how many there are in the Russian fleet, but there'll be you know, a couple of dozen, thirty, forty, something like that. I I doubt it's that high. I can't imagine it's more than thirty odd. You'll know better than me out there. Please please let me know. So you know, four is is significant. So either the air defence and more broadly the system, the Russian armed forces are not learning. They're not looking at what's going on. They're not looking at the strike that wiped out Tupolev. TU-22M a few weeks ago, they're not learning from this or they're not able to. They're not able to do anything about it. They might be prioritising the air defence assets they have for the front lines in in Ukraine. Now, that that is probably a good thing as far as Ukraine are concerned. So, but if, they, if they're either not learning or they've not got the stuff there because they've had to send it into Ukraine, I think that will encourage Ukraine to continue to target military sites, keeping them well away from that moral argument that we had last week that I mentioned briefly earlier on about what do you target when if you're in a you know an existentialist fight for your life, which is the definition of existentialist. Don't sneer, Francis. But you know it does allow Ukraine room to plan because if you know what your enemy is going to do, if you know what their dispositions are, and you can assess to a degree of certainty, or you know you, you feel confident in your assessment that you know what they're going to do, i.e. Russia, they're not going to do anything on air defence or they don't have the assets. That means you can plan long term. And and that is only ever good to it for a military side to be able to do that with some degree of certainty about what the other side is going to do. I look at the these these paper drones, these these cardboard drones, which I presume is are getting through because either because the air defence isn't there or because they have such a low radar cross section. And if anybody knows anything about cardboard drones and radar cross sections, please email me this afternoon because I've got to write 500 words in the next two hours. But I think it comes down to the fact that, that Russia is not overall a learning organisation. The system, the military system in particular, is not a learning organisation. They are just doing what they what they know or what what they can. Either of those, I think Zelensky would take. And and I just I'm reminded yet again, and I've said it before, no great no great insight here. The great Napoleon quote about never interrupt your enemy when he's making a mistake. And I think that's what Ukraine are pressing at now when it comes to these long range strikes inside inside Russia. Thank you very much, Dom. Natalia Vasilieva. Yeah, I uh, really would like to just add a couple of words to what Dom just said. Obviously, yes, the, the attack on Pskov uh, should have quite a significant damage. And it would be very interesting to see if we can see the immediate am- impact on the ground. In the coming days of weeks, again, like Pskov is one of the places where one of Russia's uh, most battle-ready paratrooper unit is, is based, the Pskov Division, and the airfield was used by them, and these are the planes that Pskov paratroopers would be used would be using to go to Ukraine. So obviously, the more of those attacks we have that, that impact them, um, the, that, that directly impacts the battle readiness. Uh, it would be very interesting to see what happens on the ground. Like, are we going to be seeing troops arriving later than they should be? That the reinforcement, reinforcements will not be coming in as um, on the schedule that that would be appropriate. So, yeah, it's quite quite fascinating. I'm quite interested to see the immediate impact of that in the coming weeks. Thank you, Dom and Natalia. Francis Sternley, would you like the final words? Well, thank you, David. Lots of abstractions and theories from me today. So I just wanted to return to the human cost of this war in my final thought. And it's been a while since we've spoken about children on the podcast. And Ukrainian authorities today ordered the mandatory forced evacuation of children from five towns near the southern Zaporizhia front line as fighting in the region intensifies in the way that Don was describing earlier and we were talking about yesterday. The head of the regional military administration has said that 54 children and 64 accompanying family members were being forced to evacuate from one settlement in the region. And he just gave a flavour of quite how vicious it is from a civilian perspective there. He said there are an average of 90 to 120 attacks per day And there are settlements that are constantly under fire. So just a small, tiny example on one area of the front of what the cost of this war means for children and civilians more broadly. Another development in this space today is that we hear that more than 1,300 schools have been totally destroyed 
in government-held Ukraine since the invasion last year, UNICEF said today. Others have been seriously damaged. And as we've talked about in the podcast previously, this has massive ramifications, of course, on the education of children. Many of them have had to be learning in bunkers or learning from home with resources that are out of date or without access to -to up-to-date technology. And I know we've covered that extensively, but nonetheless, this is still all going on in the background. And obviously, we're trying to bring you the most important developments, but it's important, I think, not to forget that, that this is a generational battle that is being fought here and one that will take many, many years for Ukraine to recover from in terms of the educational impact on the next generation. And that's before, of course, one even gets into the war crimes, the thousands of stolen children and those whose lives have been cut cruelly short by this war. We haven't forgotten them and we will continue to draw attention to their plights whenever we can. And I'm sure we will uh, in the next few days and weeks. Uh, Certainly there's no shortage of things going on. But at the moment, our attention is elsewhere. But as I say, always worth bearing them in mind as well as, as this terrible war goes on. Well, thank you very much, Natalia, Dom and Francis, for your time and your reporting today. To our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in and listening to our reporting day after day. A quick thing from me. The deadline for the British Podcast Awards is fast approaching, and we'd really love it if you'd enter the podcasts for the Listener's Choice Awards. If you'd like to nominate us, just go to www.britishpodcastawards.com forward slash voting and vote for the podcast there. We'll put the web address in the show notes. Thanks again. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Louisa Wells, and the executive producers were David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.